Hey, good morning. How, how are you guys? Man, it's so good to be here. This is such, a, such an honor uh, to get to do this swap with Jose. Known Jose now uh, for, I think, like eight years or something. And let me just, before we, we get started, um, just brag on Jose a little bit. You guys have an amazing pastor. Uh, one of the, the joys for me over the last several years has been getting to, to know Jose, uh, whether it's doing a, a table swap like this, um, or a cup of coffee, or some events, or going to Uganda like we did a couple years ago. Um, but he's just an incredible, incredible man, and uh, he's a man of integrity, uh, and an amazing teacher, and a phenomenal, like, first-rate evangelist. So you, you guys are so blessed, and I consider it an honor just to be a part of the church network with Jose and get to come and hang out with you guys today. So thank you so much for the invitation. Um, Jose definitely has the harder job today. You're kind of stuck with me. And uh, he invited me to come. He's like, hey, would you come and, and share a little bit uh, about your book? And so that's, uh, yeah, that's what I want to do today. It's a book that, um, as you saw in the title, When Faith Fails, um, it's, it's about what do we do in those seasons of life when it feels like our faith is failing. And um, there was a time in my life uh, where I came like this close to losing my faith. And it was like one of the most excruciating, uh, difficult seasons spiritually for me. And after coming through that season, I just like had this burden, had this passion to just share that story a little bit and, and hopefully help people who may be going through a similar space. And so maybe, maybe you've gone there or you know people who are in that place. And so that's why I wrote it. And I kind of share my story in there and then unpack different specific topics. And you saw Bob, uh, he did the forward to the book and uh, talking about just like, what do we do practically to move from a faith that feels like it's failing to a deeper, more authentic, more beautiful uh, form of it. So anyway, I want to begin by a verse in an obscure book, and it's in Jude 22. Um, I say Jude 22 because there's only one chapter in Jude, so it's Jude verse 22. Uh, so if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to that book. It's right before the book of Revelation, to the right, if you're new to the Bible, Jude verse 22. And let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, just for this incredible community. Thank you that we have an opportunity to, to gather together, to read your word together. And I pray, Lord, that um, your spirit would just move and work in this place. I pray a special blessing on Jose uh, as he is sharing uh, your word at Westside today. Uh, just give him wisdom and strength and anoint him and empower him. And I thank you, God, for this incredible community, um, for the time that we have spent already in worship. And now I pray that your word would just strengthen our faith and show us what, what faith and doubt is all about and how to have that conversation well. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, Jude 22. Um, I think we're going to have it on the screen. What I would love to do, if we could, is read it together as a church. Actually, that's not it. Uh, hopefully, it's the one before, Jude 22. If not, I'll just read it to you. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Now, I, I know that there are some people who would read that verse, and they would think, I have a really, really hard time relating to that. Because theirs is the story where it seems that they've always believed. 
You guys know who I'm talking about. Uh, maybe a friend of yours or a relative of yours. Um, but it just seems like as long as you've known them, <laughs> they've just had this relationship with God that is robust and alive and kind of without any questions or, or hardship. And, and if that's part of your story, if you're like, man, I've always believed, honestly, I'm like really envious of that. I think that's a beautiful thing. Maybe it's like you look at your own story and you were believing in God from the time you were an infant. It's like you were singing Hillsong in your mother's womb, and you just came out speaking in tongues, and you haven't looked back since. And if that's your story, wonderful. I think that's great. But for most of us, um, I think doubt and questions about our faith, it's just, it's going to be part of the package. Um, the philosopher Michael Novak, he put it this way, and this is where that quote will come on the screen. It says, that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. So doubt then is just part of the complicated, enigmatic, beautiful mess of what it means to be human, of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means to know and understand this God. Doubt is the moment when this happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. You get a text from a friend and you find out that they've just gone through some, some tragedy or heartache and your own heart is just breaking at the news and you wonder, God, why would you allow this? Or one of our pastors on staff recently at Westside, his nine-month-old son, after nine months of just all kinds of complications uh, with their son medically, and he passed away and we're sitting there at the memorial service and hearing the stories and watching the pictures and seeing a family that's grieving. And again, your heart is shattered by that. And you wonder, God, why? Why, why would you allow them to go through this? Or, or maybe it's doubt because maybe you're a student and you're studying science. And the more that you study about science, you, you begin to see things that at a surface level seems to be incompatible with the Christian story. And you begin to wonder, how, how could both the Bible be true and also this thing I'm learning in science be true. Is there a conflict between science and faith? Or maybe it's doubt that's caused by your involvement with church. Hopefully not this one, but I alluded to it in the video. There are times, and I've gone through this, uh, where you look at the church or you get to know people in the church or you rub shoulders with leaders in the church and you begin to see things in the church that like, oh, wow, okay, it seems incompatible with what I know about Christianity and there seems to be a lot of hypocrisy in the church. This happened just recently, actually. Ran into a guy uh, at, at Starbucks and I'm like, hey, you know, I haven't seen you for a while. It's been a few years. And he said, oh, yeah, I don't like to go to church anymore. I'm like, why not? And, and he said, well, the church is just full of, you guys know, what? Hypocrites. And I'm like, well, there's always room for one more, right? We'd, we'd love to have you back. It'd be, it'd be wonderful. Um, but I get that. When, when people say that their faith is shaken because of what they've seen in church, like, Man, absolutely. I've been there. I've seen that and been a part of that. And I can understand why that would cause doubt in your life. Or, or, or think about the doubt that we can experience when you study Scripture. And I don't know how many of you are doing the Read Through the Bible in a Year program, or maybe you started and then halfway into January, that kind of, you're like, well, 2020. Um, but it's interesting how sometimes reading the Bible can raise more questions than answers. You go to Genesis, and it's mostly fast-moving, and there's a ton of interesting stories, and you get to Exodus, and you can always watch the movie. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, whoa, okay, 
there, there's all these sacrifices and it, it seems bloody or barbaric or weird. Just, I mean, just some of the verses there, it leaves you scratching your head. For example, thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. You're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and he set it back outside, right? I mean, how many read through the Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? And, and, and that doesn't even include some of the passages that you see in Joshua or Judges and and when you're reading scripture, if we're honest, there, there are times when it's raising questions or it seems incompatible with what we believe about God versus what we're seeing in scripture. All of these things are coming at us. And it's not just the doubt that we experience from our own personal journey. It's the doubt that we experience in our cultural environment in which we find ourselves in. We breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. Um, there is something that is happening right now culturally in, in, in this time in which we live where we're assailed with doubts and uncertainties and we're distracted. Um, uh, two-thirds, do you know there's some stats according to a Pew survey, two-thirds of people who identify as Christians say that they struggle with doubt. Two-thirds. Um, the, the stats on doubt are increasing. It's 15% higher in the last 10 years. So we're seeing this trend in our nation where church attendance as a whole, uh, for the most part, is declining. Doubt is increasing. And then this one's really uh, heartbreaking. Gen Z, which is the generation after um, the millennials. So it's anyone 22 years old and under is considered Gen Z. Uh, so now that I'm 23, I'm just barely missed that. Um, if anyone 22 and under is considered Gen Z, consider now the least uh, Christian generation in our nation's history. So this is absolutely tragic. I read another stat. It's not on here, uh, but just read it a few days ago. That uh, high schoolers, those who are a part of, of a Christian high school, 70% uh, are a Christian youth group, I should say, 70% will lose their faith by the time they graduate high school. Something is happening. Um, the author, James K.A. Smith, he said, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting, we're all Thomas now. We need to know how to respond to those who are struggling with their faith. We need to know what to do when we go through times in our life, in our own spiritual journey, when we're struggling with our faith. And yet, sadly, the, the, the script that most Christians are handed, I would argue, is a very, very unhealthy response to doubt. You see, when we struggle with doubt, typically Christians are given two options. And neither option is very good. Option one is to demonize your doubt. And I think this is especially prevalent in certain church circles. Here, doubt is considered as the great nemesis, the great enemy of faith. And so we find ourselves in, in church contexts where it's all about faking it. It's all about putting on the happy face. There's no room for questions. There's no room for doubts. There's no room for struggles. Everything is, is wonderful. I call it the Lego gospel. Everything is awesome, right? You just go in and, yeah, I'm 
great and I have no issues and I have no questions. And in, in church environments like that, if you dare to doubt or if you dare to ask questions, you're often marginalized, uh, you're shamed or critiqued or, or you feel like it's not really a safe space for me to, to share what I'm really thinking or, or, or to bring to the surface those things that I'm wrestling through. And, and so what happens is Christians begin to suppress their doubt, which is a highly toxic and dangerous thing to do. Because suppressed doubt has a propensity to reemerge, often, though, in a form way more volatile than before. It's not until we drag doubt into the light and we're honest with it and we engage with it that, that our doubt actually can be redeemed and turned into something beautiful. But when we're just pretending, when we're just covering it with Christianese or cat posters, it's only going to become more and more virulent and actually toxic to our faith. Now, why is this? Why is it that so many church contexts do not give a safe space to honest and authentic wrestling through our doubts? I, I think the answer primarily is theological, that there is this misnomer that faith is the same or, or faith is the opposite of doubt. But I would argue that that's not true. I like to see it as a spectrum. So let's say you have faith on this side, and this is where Jesus is trying to get us to, deeper and deeper faith, closer and closer in relationship with him. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. What is doubt then? Doubt is kind of that murky middle space in between. Doubt in and of itself is essentially neutral. It's kind of like a spiritual Switzerland, right? It's what you do with it that counts, or think of a river. So on one side, you have faith, and on the other side, you have the bank of unbelief, but in the middle is a space of doubt and uncertainty. And what you do with your doubts, what you do with those questions can either lead you into deeper faith or it can lead you towards unbelief. Now, when you look at Scripture, this is actually what you find. This is why Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt, because it is that middle space. And, and when you look at how the New Testament defines doubt, this is what you discover. There are two separate words that are used for doubt and unbelief. The word doubt in the Greek language is the word diakrino. Um, let me hear you say diakrino. And this is so fascinating to me. It means to separate or to be torn. So think of what James says about the, about the word doubt, right? It's the person who's on the stormy sea and they're kind of tossed to and fro. They're, they're being torn between two different ways of seeing the world or two different interpretations of reality or two different views on God. So, so it's that moment where, okay, you have faith and you want to believe and yet you're being torn in a certain direction and now you don't know which way is right and which way is wrong. Now, when you actually do a cultural study, if you're into anthropology or studying history, um, when you do an anthropolo anthropological study on the word doubt, you find that it's exactly this definition. Uh, for example, the ancient Greeks, they understood doubt as, quote, a tearing of the mind. Or the Chinese, the ancient Chinese, you know how they used word pictures uh, to describe things in their, in their language? Very beautiful, the way they wrote things. Um, in the ancient Chinese, the word doubt is actually a picture of a man with a foot in two separate boats. 
That's not going to end well. But that's how they understood doubt. You're being torn in two different directions. Or the Peruvians, thousands of years ago, they defined doubt as having two thoughts. Or in Guatemala, they defined doubt as a person whose heart is made two. So doubting then is when you're being torn between two seemingly incompatible points of view. The word unbelief, though, and this is so important, is totally different than the word doubt. In the Greek language, in the New Testament, it's the word apostia. Uh, let me hear you say apostia. So you have diacrino, meaning being torn. You have apostia, which means an unwillingness to believe. Think Mark chapter 5, where it says Jesus had to move on to a different village. Why? Because of their apostia. They didn't want to believe, and so Jesus is like, okay, I'll go somewhere else, where they actually do want to believe, where they have questions and a sincere longing for truth. So doubt says, I don't know what's right, but I would love to find out. Unbelief says, you know what? I kind of made up my mind. Doubt says, I'm pursuing the truth. Unbelief says, ah, I'll just stick with this lie. Doubt is when you're searching for the light. Unbelief is when you're willfully choosing the darkness. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. So a number of years ago, uh, my, my wife and I, we moved uh, to Oxford, England. I was actually born in Oxford. You never guess it based on my accent. I lost it because I, I was eight when we moved to California. But then a number of years ago, my wife and I went back there, and I was doing this master's program at the university. It was an incredible time, beautiful time. And while I was there, um, I read this article in the newspaper. I think it was The Guardian, one of the British newspapers. And they interviewed a guy named Stephen Hawking. You all heard of Stephen Hawking, right? The, the brilliant physicist uh, who recently passed away. He was also an atheist. Um, I think his view on atheism has probably changed recently. Um, but Stephen Hawking, he was interviewed by The Guardian. They're like, okay, you know, what do you think about faith? And he's just beating up on Christianity big time in this article. And at one point in the article, he said, quote, Christianity is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the dark. Those who were writing the article, they went, then went to John Lennox, who was a professor at mine, of mine uh, in mathematics, a brilliant guy. You can actually go on YouTube, highly recommend his stuff uh, as he talks about faith and Christianity and science especially. And they went to him. He's a passionate Jesus follower. And they're like, look, a colleague of yours just said that Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say? And John Lennox, without missing a beat, he's like, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. Just drop the mic, right? But he, he's, he's pointing out something that for, for Stephen Hawking, it wasn't doubt so much, it was unbelief. He'd made up his mind. He wasn't really interested in a different perspective. No, this is what I believe. I'm dogmatic on this. Think of the new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. It's like, I don't believe in God, and I hate him at the same time, which is their message. And yet, doubt is in a different space. Doubt is saying, you know, I do have this belief, but I'm struggling with unbelief. Doubt says, I have been taught this from church or my pastor or my parents or books that I've read, but now I just went through something, cancer, divorce, anxiety, depression, and, and it's causing me to question all of that. And so doubt is that murky middle space. It's when you're 
torn. This is important to understand because in faith communities, in churches, we don't get this many times. We think that doubt is the same as unbelief. So when someone struggles, we're like, you don't have a place here. We're not going to allow you to raise those questions here. And that is so toxic. So I think that's the first response that Christians have when they struggle with doubt is, is to suppress them, to demonize them. But another response, which I think is growing nowadays and is equally unhealthy, is not so much to demonize doubt as it is to idolize doubt. <laughs> and here, people put more trust in their doubt than the thing that they're doubting. Uh, we see this in, in so-called progressive Christian writers, authors, thinkers, podcasters, and kind of the key word here is deconstruction. So what we're told is, you know what? Deconstruct everything. Deconstruct your faith, and let's just see where it leads. Now, I actually do think that deconstruction to a certain point can be helpful if it's rearranging the furniture, if it's a sincere and authentic quest for truth, and if you're replacing it with truth. But deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction can actually be incredibly impoverishing. I mean, think about it. If we deconstructed this building that you all meet in, which is an amazing building, by the way, if, if we started taking apart the roof and then the walls and the stage, well, pretty soon there'd be nothing left. I think of a friend of mine who, a number of years ago, he went down this path of deconstruction and started listening to all these podcasts like The Liturgist or Science Mike. Some of you have heard of them. And, and I remember having these conversations with him. And in one conversation, he's like, I don't really believe in the resurrection anymore. So he's deconstructed that. Another conversation, I don't really believe the word of God anymore. I don't think it's inspired. Deconstruct that. I, I don't really agree with this theological perspective. Deconstruct that. I don't really believe, next conversation, in, in church. We don't need church. And so he, he quit going to church. And I ran into him a, a, about a year ago. I'm like, so how's it going? What's new? And, and you know, where are you at in your, your faith journey? He's like, ah, he's basically an agnostic slash atheist now. So what he'd done is he'd gone down this path of deconstruction, tearing everything apart, and all that was left was, I'm like, well, what are you into? And he's like, I, I really like the liturgists. I really like Science Mike. Okay, so you've replaced your faith with kind of a personality cult then, right? Any two-year-old can tear up a room. I think it takes real wisdom to learn how to live in the tension of an unresolved faith. And deconstruction, for the sake of deconstruction, can only take you so far if it's not fueled by an authentic quest for truth and to understand who God is more. And, and this is where I feel the healthiest response to doubt, and I think why Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt, because the best way to respond is not to suppress our doubts or fake our way through seasons of uncertainty, nor is the best response to idolize our doubt and putting more trust in the doubt than the thing that we're doubting. The best response is to wrestle with our doubts. And what I mean by that is to take a season of your life and go all in. To think and pray and probe and ask the questions that no one dares to ask and bring them all on the, on the table and wrestle through them in community with others and get real with God, get real with others. And it's in seasons like that when we are truly honest with what we're wrestling through and bring them to the presence of God, that I believe faith can be 
reborn. And, and this is what I love about Scripture, is that the Bible is filled with people who did just that. Um, I think, for example, of Moses, who wrestled with God on Mount Sinai. He had questions about God's justice. God, why would you destroy your people? I don't get it. And he's wrestling with God on the mountain. And what happens? He saw the glory of God. Or Habakkuk. Do you, do you know the name Habakkuk? Literally means wrestler. <laughs> So he's the world's first luchador, if you're a fan of Nacho Libre. And he wrestled. He went up to his mountain, it says, in Habakkuk. And he says, God, I'm not leaving this place until you show up and you give me some answers. That's what it means to wrestle through our doubts. Or I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I had a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. I was talking to another pastor about this the other day, and what, what was that messenger from Satan to buffet him? There's all these different commentaries on this. Uh, one commentary says it was Satan, that it, it was spiritual warfare. Another commentary said, no, the messenger from Satan was some, some physical thing. He had some issue with his eyes. Another one said, no, it was persecution. I actually, true story, I read one commentary. It said the messenger from Satan to buffet him was his mother-in-law. Now, I don't think that went down well with his wife. Um, but whatever the messenger from Satan was, Paul's like, I'm struggling. I, I, I have questions. God, take this away from me. Take this away from me. And you know the story. As he wrestles with God through that season, what happens? God shows up and he says, my grace is enough for you, sufficient for you. I think of Asaph. Oh, this is beautiful. Asaph, Psalm 73, verse 1, it says, truly God is good. We all love that verse. Yeah, God is good. I spoke at a church recently, um, and the pastor gets up there, and he's like, God is good. And I guess they've been trained to do this, because everyone in the congregation is like, all the time, he is good, right? Okay, that's great. But if you keep reading Psalm 73, what Asaph does is he kind of deconstructs that a bit. He's like, I believe you're good, but I'm going through this, and I don't know why. Again, that's doubt. It's where you have belief and confidence in who God is. That's the, the, the foundation that you stand on, but something has happened. You just saw that. You just experienced that. You just read that, and now you're not sure. And this is why in verse 2, Asaph says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. He's like, it feels like the world is, is giving way, that this is hard, this is challenging, this is difficult. You see, wrestling with God is not the easiest option, but it is the best option. But it can be incredibly disorienting, confusing, and painful. Os Guinness, um, he, he wrote this. He said, doubting God is so devastating for when trust and dependence turn into doubt, it is as if the sun is eclipsed. The compass needle wavers without a north. And the very earth that was so solid moves as in an earthquake. When, when, when I went through my season of deconstruction, when I went through my own season where my faith almost failed, for me, what made it so challenging and I think for any who go through seasons of doubt, is that the questions that you're struggling with or the thing that you're going through can cause you to reevaluate or experience uncertainty about the character of God. Doubt isn't just an intellectual thing. It may start there, 
But what makes doubt so hard is that it can become excruciatingly emotional and painful at a deep, visceral, even spiritual level. Um, I don't know how many of you are fans of C.S. Lewis, but he wrote this incredible book uh, called A Grief Observed. In fact, I'm curious, how many of you have read A Grief Observed? A couple of you? Okay, if you want to be depressed, check out A Grief Observed. <laughs> um, because it is really depressing, but it's also hopeful, especially towards the end. Um, the backstory of a grief observed, C.S. Lewis, if you've seen the movie Shadowlands, you know that story. Uh, he was married to a, a lady named Joy, and C.S. Lewis described those years of being married to her. They were short, but he described them as, quote, the happiest years of his life. And yet cancer caught up with her. And she wrestled through it, then she went into remission, and then it came back, and then tragically, she died. Shortly after Joy died, C.S. Lewis wrote his book, A Grief Observed. Did you know that when he originally wrote A Grief Observed, he wrote it under a pseudonym because he didn't want people to know who he was. People are used to C.S. Lewis, the apologetics guy, C.S. Lewis, the mere Christianity guy. But here he was in A Grief Observed, and it's a, it's a different book. Uh, there, there's no easy answers. It's very unfiltered. It's raw, it's ragged, it's, it's gritty, and he pours out his emotion in real time. He's very, very honest. He's like, God, I, I prayed to you. I came to the door of faith. And yet when I came, all I experienced was a slam door in my face. You didn't hear me. You didn't answer me. And he says, well, what I'm really struggling through is that, God, I, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. I, I don't know if what I learned about you is actually true. Again, think Asaph. Truly, God is good, but my feet are slipping. It's that kind of experience. I thought you were this way. I thought you were good and trustworthy and reliable and someone I could go to in hard times. But, but now this crisis has caused me to ask these questions. Do I really know you? Do, do, I, really, do I really believe the right things about you? C.S. Lewis uses the word iconoclast. He says, my view of you, God, is being shattered. Now, you can see why I said it's super depressing. But if you keep reading A Grief Observed and you get towards the end, it's absolutely breathtaking because what C.S. Lewis does is he says, my view of you is being shattered, but now through this grieving and through this heartache and through this pain, it's actually being rebuilt into something different. I am seeing you in ways that I never have before. My, my view of you, it's no longer based on these old ideas I used to have, but it's something redemptive and resurrected and life-giving. And then he writes this, and it's one of my favorite lines of, of C.S. Lewis, and it's in his book, Till We Have Faces, which is another obscure book of his. He says, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Isn't that beautiful? I, I think that's one of the most beautiful lines ever written. He says, I've spent years wrestling, doubting, wondering, hurting, and I've come to the conclusion that what my heart really wants is not more bullet point simplistic answers or even resolution to all my doubts. Lewis says, what my heart really wants, Lord, is, is you. You yourself are the answer. Now, I share this because what this shows us is that doubt can be redeemed. <laughs> Deep faith 
waits for us on the other side of agonizing doubt. That if we make the choice not to demonize, suppress, trivialize, ignore our doubts, nor worship our doubts and idolize our doubts, but instead to wrestle with our doubts, if like C.S. Lewis, we go all in, I think what we can discover is a deeper, more beautiful form of faith. Christopher Wright, he's a theologian in England. He said, it seems to me that the older I get, the less I think I really understand God, which is not to say that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on, my love and my trust grow deeper. I think it's important to understand doubt in context of relationship. It's like any relationship. Sometimes it's the uncertainty and it's the questions that can actually drive you into a a beautiful, more vulnerable love for the other person. So this was a couple months ago. Guy comes up to me after I think our 10 a.m. gathering at Westside. And uh, I've known him for a few years and he's like all about wanting to get married. He's single guys in his later 20s and he's dated a bunch of girls. Nothing's really worked out. And finally, he comes up to me after one of the gatherings, and he's grinning ear to ear, and he's like, Dominic, I just met this girl, and we've been dating, and it's been amazing, and I'm like, that's awesome, man, tell me about her, and he goes on and on, but then at one point, he kind of slips in, he's like, and she's not a Christian yet, but I'm hoping she'll come to church. I'm like, oh, so you're kind of missionary dating. He's like, yeah, you know, it's probably not the best idea, but Dom, you don't understand, she's so hot. That's what he said, she's so hot. I'm like, so is hell, right? Um, (laughs) Let's, let's talk, man. And, and, and so he did. We went into this conversation. And again, another point, he's like, you know, we've been together now for eight months. And he said, Dominic, th- this is a good sign, right? He said, Dom, we, we haven't had a single argument in eight months. Isn't that great? And I'm like, ah, I don't think it is, actually. You, you, you mean to tell me that you've, you've been together that long and you've had numerous conversations and hours and hours spent together, and you're saying you haven't had a single argument? Does she really know you? Do you really know her? Because I would actually argue that if there's tension, if there's uncertainty, that means that the relationship is is moving forward. If it's just surface level, then sure, there's not going to be any tension or friction. But if you're really going deeper, it's going to raise all kinds of things to the surface, right? So I think about my own wife, Elisa. Um, We've been married for, this will be year 19, crazy. And there's, even though we've been married 19 years, there's still a lot about my wife that I don't know, right? There's some things I do know. I know she's a morning person, and she loves to paint, and she loves to cook, and she used to like cats, but then she repented, and, uh, <laughs> and we got a golden doodle. Uh, she's just an inc- incredible woman. Now, there's a lot I, I know about her. There's also a lot I don't know about her. There are times where she surprises me. There are times where, oh, I didn't see that coming. Or, wow, okay, I didn't know you liked that genre of music. Or, wow, I didn't realize that about that story that you just shared about your past. That's really cool. And, and I'm learning things about my wife. Now, question. I would argue that that uncertainty is a good thing, Right? that mystery is a healthy thing because if I literally knew everything about my wife, if I knew every thought that she had, if I knew every word that she was gonna say before she said it, if I knew every placement of every atom in her body, if I knew exactly where she was at any given second, not only would that be slightly creepy, um, 
But it would hinder the progression of love because true love is the pursuit of love. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. It's because there's questions that are aching to be unasked. It's because there's aspects to her, dimensions to her personality that have yet to be fully investigated or understood. Well, that keeps the love alive because it's the pursuit of love. It's the journey. It's the quest. It's because I want to know more about her that the relationship it begins to flourish. What if the same thing is true in our relationship with God? <laughs> what if God creates a world where it's not based on certainty and bullet point answers, but he instead creates a world where questions are possible? In fact, you can see this in the book of Genesis. God creates male and female. He puts them in a garden. And even though it was paradise, there was still a lot of questions. There was still a lot of uncertainty. And there were limits to their time, to their intellect. There were limits even physically, the boundaries around Eden. And God puts them in this place with very real barriers and, and uncertainties. And yet at the same time, he makes them curious. Why? Because God, from the very beginning, he wants us to pursue him. Following Jesus, by definition, is a quest. It's a journey. It's going all in. It's knowing him, seeking him. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. You see, our uncertainties and doubts and questions, if we allow them, can be one of the most beautiful, redemptive, life-giving things imaginable. Now, one, one example. Um, years ago, and I'll close with this story. Um, I used to be a missionary in a place called Vanuatu. It's one of the things I love about Jose, actually, is uh, Jose, he has such a heart for different nations. And I used to live um, in this small island group, kind of near Fiji, um, which when my pastor first asked me if I'd like to go to Vanuatu, I had no idea where it was. I went to, I said yes. And then I went to Walmart, picked up a map, and I spent like 45 minutes trying to find the country. It's considered the most uh, uh, primitive country on earth by, by anthropologists. Many of the people there are living kind of in the Stone Age, uh, no electricity, no running water, unreached people groups. Uh, there were villages that I got to step into where I was literally the first outsider they had ever seen. Uh, huge opportunities for the gospel. And so I was there for three years trying to adjust culturally, trying to adjust to their language. And they spoke this language called Bislama. And Bislama is this cross between caveman meets Tarzan meets Pig Latin. Um, it's like really descriptive. So for example, the word slingshot, uh, you, you wouldn't say slingshot, you would say, Himi one elastic blong shootem pigeon. That's the word slingshot. And they use them to kill their food. So there's no Walmart or Albertsons there. Uh, every night you go fishing or you get these slingshots and that, that's how you catch the birds or whatever. Um, or the word piano. This is my favorite word of all time. So the word piano, you wouldn't just say piano. You would say, hit me one big fella box where he got white teeth belong him. Moe got black teeth belong him. Mo suppose you kill him teeth belong him. Him he sing out long you. That's the word piano. So you can imagine, I'm there teaching the Bible to a group of college-age students, and I come across the word propitiation. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to take months, and it did. So, so I'm trying to learn this language, trying to adjust to their culture, trying to understand their way of living, and I'll never forget, 
this one night. I've been there only a few months, and because there's nothing to do in Vanuatu, like literally every night, what you do is you sit around a fire, and they call it talk story, which I actually think is a beautiful thing because we're so distracted now by Instagram and cell phones and all that. We've kind of lost the art of true like, engagement and storytelling. So every night, we just sit around a fire, and for hours, they would just go around, and they'd share these incredible stories. One night, one of the guys looks at me, and he's like, Dominic, tell us a story about America. What is your favorite place to go? And without even thinking about it, I should have, it blurted out of my mouth. I said, Disneyland. And they're like, what's that? Now, how do you describe Disneyland to people who are living in the Stone Age? Like, where, where do you even begin? Especially in a language like Bislama. So I'm like, okay. Uh, and I could tell they, they really wanted me to know. There's no getting out of it. So I'm like, there's a place um, in California and it's called Disneyland. And when, when you walk there, um, because it's all descriptive, like what, what's it like to see it? And I'm like, when you walk there, the very first thing you see is a, is a castle. But the problem was in Bislama, there is no word for castle. The closest they have is big fella hut. So I said, there's a big fella hut in California. And they're like, how big? I'm like, 100 feet tall or so, maybe a little more. Now, this is huge because most of their huts are like 10 or 12 feet. So already their mind's like, whoa, huge, this big, big fella hut. And I'm like, yeah, and it's colorful too. There's like different lights. And again, there's no electricity there. So that was really hard for them to imagine. And they're like, okay, why is this hut there in California? I'm like, well, the, you can't talk about Disneyland without talking about its mascot, right? So I'm like, well, there's a mouse. <laughs> and, and his name, his name is Mickey. But the problem was in, in Bislama, there is no word for mouse. The closest they have is big fella rat, which was their worst nightmare because rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. We're talking R-O-U-S's. Like, they hated rats. They, they were constantly trying to kill rats and capture rats. And they're like, how big is this big fella rat that lives in this big fella hut? I'm like, eight, nine, ten feet tall? It's, it's, it's a big rat. And, and I could just see their eyes are like, what? And I'm like, no, no, it's not a real rat. There's someone inside the rat. <laughs> so he eats people? No, no, no. He, he, he's in there talking through the, the skin of the rat, like demon possession. Like what, 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 what is this? I could just see they're absolutely terrified by this description. And so I'm like, okay, forget, forget the rat. Uh, if you go into Disney, there's these big fella cups and you sit inside these big fella cups, you spin around and around and their heads are just at this point. And then it got real quiet. And one of the guys, I could just tell they're processing all of this. And one of the guys, he looks at me from across the fire and true story, straight face. He's like, Dominic, you should never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. <laughs> and Mickey the rat, he said, is a witch doctor. <laughs> So now he might be right about Mickey. Who knows? That's another conversation. So here I am. I'm like stumbling over my words. I'm trying my best to describe it. What I thought is the happiest place on earth, in his mind, it's a version of hell with a witch doctor slash mastermind named Mickey. What do you do? And so we're having this conversation. We're going back and forth. And then I finally said, you know, I think the only answer to this, the only way that all your questions about this place could be resolved is how. What's the only way? Yeah, you go there. 
And I told them, and I was like in my early 20s at the time, and I'm like, I don't have any money, but I, if I did, I'd take you all to Disneyland. Get on a plane right now, pack up your bags, get some clothes on, because they don't wear a lot of clothes if I want to. We'll fly to Anaheim, and then we'll, we'll go to Disneyland, and you could see the castle. And you could see Mickey. You could take a, a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like, you could see it and experience it. If you could go there, then you would begin to to have some of the answers that you're looking for. I think God allows us to go through those times of uncertainty. You know what I'm talking about. The times in your journey where you're sitting around a fire and you're exposed to a different perspective or you go through tragedy or heartache or cancer or divorce or you're wrestling with theology or you're struggling with unanswered prayer or you see hypocrisy in the church and that moment is our moment of big fella hut, big fella rat. We're like, I don't understand this. This is confusing to me. I'm being torn. It's diacrino. I'm struggling. As for me, my feet almost slipped. C.S. Lewis, the great iconoclast, you're, you're shattering my view of you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. God, where are you? It feels like my faith is failing. What do I do? And it's in times like that where God is saying, the only answer it's not to pretend those questions and doubts don't exist, but pack your bags, get on a plane, and let's go. There's a journey I want to take you on. There are places that I want to take you. There are things that I want to show you. There are doors that I want to open for you. That if you make the decision to be a luchador, you make a decision to be a wrestler, you make a decision like Paul to pray over and over again, or like Habakkuk, get up on your tower and say, I will not leave until, Lord, you show up. Or like Moses, who's on Mount Sinai, who finally sees the glory of God. You make that decision in seasons of doubt to say, I am going all in, what you will discover is that your doubts can be redeemed. And the very uncertainty and the very thing that's causing you so many questions can become life-giving and beautiful and harness your faith to a more richer, beautiful, authentic version of it. Even if it feels like your faith is failing. The good news is, Jesus never will. Amen? Amen? Let's all stand up together, shall we? And Father, I thank you so much that deep in our DNA, our spiritual DNA, is a longing and a desire to not just know about you, but to know you. The restlessness that's in our heart because we don't want to settle for superficial answers or fake versions of Christianity, but something real. I think you've put that restlessness in us because it's a great invitation to go further and deeper into you. And I pray right now for my brothers and sisters, any who may be in a place right now where it feels like their faith is failing, 
any who are struggling to believe or for those who have friends, family members, think of people in my own life, God, who right now they've walked away. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to have those conversations with them. The prodigals would come home. And that, God, we could be the kind of community and the kinds of people who, like that verse says in Jude 22, be merciful to those who doubt. And, God, I thank you that no one showed more mercy than you. <laughs> there you were, Lord, at the table. You have Peter, who had questions about you, and Thomas, who history calls doubting Thomas. And yet you didn't kick them out, God. You invited them to be a part of the mission to turn the world upside down. The Great Commission, it says that some believed and some doubted. Some worshipped you, some doubted. And yet what I love, Lord, is you didn't separate the worshipers from the doubters. You called them both. And they both went out and made a difference. And so, Lord, I thank you that even in this room, there are some who, man, their faith is strong and unshakable. There are some, God, who are wrestling and doubting. And yet, God, you show mercy to us all. Love you, Lord. Thank you for that. And may this continue to be a community that is a safe space for people, wherever they're at on their journey, to encounter you and wrestle with you and know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Hey, thank you so much for letting me be with you guys today. Let's worship the Lord now.